Welcome to Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture, hosted by me, Alexandria Miller. Strictly Facts teaches the history, politics, and activism of the Caribbean and connects these themes to contemporary music and popular culture. Alrighty, Strictly Facts family, thank you so much for tuning to another episode and journeying across Caribbean history with Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture, and me, of course, your host, Alexandria Miller. We're returning to a part of the Caribbean that we've ventured to a little bit before, although very briefly, as I've discussed, as you might remember, the long history of connection to, and at one point, dependency of Jamaica in this place. And so in today's episode, if you've guessed, we are talking about the Cayman Islands. And different from the previous episode, though, the indispensable role the Cayman Islands played in what some might consider, you know, luxury seafood consumption, particularly in the U.S. and the U.K. And of course, the environmental ramifications that happened as a result. And so I have a great guest joining us for this very timely discussion on Cayman Islands environmental history, Dr. Shrika Crawford, Speedwell Professor of International studies and professor of history at the U.S. Naval Academy and the author of award-winning book, The Last Turtlemen of the Caribbean, Waterscapes of Labor, Conservation, and Boundary Making. Dr. Crawford, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I am great, and thank you for having me, Alexandria. Wonderful, wonderful to have you. Please tell us a bit about yourself, you know, where in the Caribbean um, you may have connections to and how you got even interested in doing this work on environmental history in Latin America and the Caribbean. Yeah, so um, I'll begin by saying that I don't have uh, familial connections to the Caribbean. Um, I am from southwestern Michigan. As uh, far as I understand, you know, my parents and grandparents with their southern roots in Tennessee and Mississippi, as far as I know. But I have had a love for um, first Latin America and later the Caribbean um, since I was a child, because I happened to participate in a bilingual program when I was uh, in first grade. So I kind of learned Spanish very early, um, had some encounters um, with teachers and others who sort of situated me in part of Latin American and Caribbean um, communities. People would think, are you Panamanian? Um, are you Dominican? They're trying to situate me in that space. And so I think for me, it, it raised the awareness that there are obviously communities of people of African descent, something that wasn't necessarily explicitly taught in my classes, whether I was in K through 12 and a little bit more so when I was in college. So I ended up becoming more interested in um, the Caribbean, particularly the Circum-Caribbean, because I had a strong interest in the experiences of people of um, Afro-Latin American background. And I had an opportunity in 1999, which was a very long time ago, um, uh, the summer before I graduated college, to do an internship in Washington, D.C. And part of that internship um, allowed me to uh, spend a few weeks in Venezuela um, and when I was there, I happened to meet people from all over the region, including um, neighboring Colombia. And with the Colombian uh, participants of this event that I was participating in, I met some people from a small set of islands called San Andres and Providencia, which are on the western side of the Caribbean. I had never heard of these islands, <laughs> couldn't know where they were located on a map. And it struck me as kind of odd because I had a pretty good familiarity with the region, I started to learn that they don't um, want to be spoken to in Spanish, though many of them did speak Spanish. They wanted to be spoken to in English. They had a Protestant background. And eventually it piqued um, my interest enough to get a Fulbright um, about two years later to study in Colombia and study these communities in which I learned that they were part of a, a wider set of connections with places like Jamaica, uh, the Cayman Islands and the Anglophone communities in Central um, America, like Nicaragua and Costa Rica and Panama. And so when I went to pursue my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh, um, I still was very much a kind of a Latin Americanist, but I was a Latin Americanist who inter 
intersected um, with the Anglophone Caribbean communities. And um, I pursued a, a PhD project simply about those islands, trying to understand uh, their cultural makeup and more importantly, the conflicts that they appeared to be having with mainland Spanish-speaking Catholic Colombians, which raises a lot of questions. Um, Ironically, I wasn't trained to do environmental history, and so my early graduate education wasn't really particularly focused on the environment. Um, I had no previous interest in animal studies or working on sea turtles, and I had a uh, cursory uh, knowledge about the Cayman Islands. But when I started my uh, first tenure track position at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, and I had to do what tenure track professors need to do, which is to publish. And I wasn't able to um, spend some additional time turning my dissertation into a book. I started to look for alternative projects. And I realized that in the material I was gathering, these small island communities kept talking about sea turtles. Um, and there were like these conflicts sort of about turtle fishing. And I just kind of pulled a thread and that thread led me to um, the Cayman Islands. And so my first book project for listeners who are studying um, maybe in graduate school, it's not always your dissertation that becomes your first book. My project really um, came out of a, a, a different trajectory. And uh, we'll have an opportunity to talk about that research um, related to sea turtles and in the history of the Cayman Islands. But um, up until, you know, uh, maybe nine years ago, I didn't have any previous connections to the Cayman Islands or really the Eastern Caribbean. I, I came out of a, a very different trajectory um, looking at Latin America and, and English speaking communities um, that are kind of housed in Latin American states. I have quite a few listeners um, and peers, of course, who are grad students. So I think that advice is, you know, one that even for me was really helpful in thinking of it's not always, you know, the dissertation that is your first book. And it's a place for us to um, just enter and intersect with varying other maybe what we might think are peripheral um you know, ideas or interests, but, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be the first book. So thank you for saying that just for all the grad students, including myself who are, you know, listening, et cetera. Uh, but I do want us, of course, to jump into our discussion on sea turtles and on Cayman Islands. And so as you were briefly alluding to, um, this story takes, you know, sort of culminates towards the end of the 20th century, but it is one that has started long before that. And so before we get into the more recent um, parts of that, could you take us a bit through the background of the Cayman Islands through turtles, through sea turtles, through turtle soup, of course, as we will continue to talk about, and just sharing a little bit about, you know, maybe even how indigenous populations um, and other communities throughout the Cayman Islands saw to, you know, these sea turtles and how it eventually becomes and a sign of the elite, in a sense. Absolutely. So if I may, let me ask your listeners to imagine a kind of a scenario where you have a group of, I don't know, wealthy, likely mostly just male diners, Maybe they are living in Manhattan in New York or Chelsea in London, you know, some very posh neighborhood. Um, they're in an upscale restaurant, you know, like the ones where you have like the white tablecloths and there's even servers who show up with white gloves. And they're all waiting to have um, a sumptuous um, bowl of turtle soup which is essentially sort of a stewed turtle with decadent flavors, um, sometimes sherry and Madeira wine, these very expensive sort of um, European liquors. Um, and as you just mentioned, Alexandria, it's, it's, it's a high class dish in the Western world. There's alternate forms of turtle soup in places like Asia, um, East Asia in particular, and, and in the Middle East, but I'm pretty much talking about places like Europe and the Americas. And this sort of um, description that I just kind of opened up with was very common from the latter part of the 17 or mid 1700s all the way until the end of the 20th century. And to be quite honest, I am absolutely certain that if you went on the internet right now and typed up turtle soup, um, you'll quickly find recipes and you might find a few restaurants and places like New Orleans 
um, maybe in Philadelphia or New York, where you still could grab something akin to a turtle soup. But the thing is, um, sea turtles are one of these animals, <laughs> these maritime or marine animals where um, no part um, of it was wasted. And that has been uh, the case for a very long time in the Caribbean. And so one of the things that I, I learned in my research and, and ultimately talked about in, in my work is how um, we see this early on with pre-Columbian indigenous populations, right? They really could appreciate sea turtles for, you know, food sources, um, for decoration. Um, sometimes they have like religious or spiritual um, symbolic importance. Um, sometimes I know that uh, many Americans, maybe even some of our listeners here, um, may have traveled to Mexico, and increasingly Cancun is a really popular place to visit. Well, Cancun is um, located in Mexico on the Yucatan Peninsula. This is also an area where there was an abundance amount of sea turtles. So the Maya, the pre-Columbian classical Maya in, in their communities that still exist there today, um, you can see remnants all over their buildings in Tulum or in Chichen Itza of sea turtles on their administrative buildings and their religious buildings, right? Um, even they have depictions of their deities, um, one of which is named um, Pachatun or God N, essentially that comes out of like a turtle shell, right? That represents longevity. So you're seeing this from the indigenous standpoint, closer into the kind of um, Caribbean Sea, you have the Turks and Caicos um, example where there's this amazing um, archaeological site on Grand Turk in which they found, I don't know, like they estimated that the, all the turtle bones that they had kind of um, excavated out of the site, that perhaps in the past, these Arawak-speaking peoples called the Lucayan, perhaps, I don't know, like consumed or processed like 5,000 pounds of sea turtles. So we're talking about even before the arrival of Europeans and people um, from the African continent to the Americas, there's already this um, utility, this engagement with sea turtles for all kinds of reasons. And so it makes a lot of sense that when we do see the arrival of, um, you know, Europeans who start to, you know, pursue their early kind of quest before colonization, um, what they're observing is sea turtles all over the place to the point where, you know, when they're entering into um, these natural harbors of islands, they can almost step on the sea turtles. And then they're observing the peoples whom they're engaging with for the first time, these various indigenous communities, and they're watching them hunt for sea turtles or, or consume them for food. And so over time, as these communities become intertwined, as Europeans come to settle in different parts of the Caribbean, what you're finding is that they too appreciate sea turtles, you know, for largely for food. And, and you see this really early on when we think about um, the back and forth movement of, um, you know, European settlers, right? They have to travel from Europe across the Atlantic into the Caribbean Sea. Well, what are they eating on those ships? Yeah, they got some, I don't know, really hard, not very appealing biscuits. Their animal proteins are often pickled or, you know, um, smoked for preservation. And they soon start adding sea turtles to their provisions, um, in part because sea turtles are these enormous animals, upwards of 600 pounds, which you can keep alive on the decks of these ships that can feed the crew, give them fresh meat, right? And so over time, um, these populations sort of learn how to create different dishes. And one of the dishes that comes out of that is turtle soup. So early on, you see in the 1700s, 1730s and 40s, and then it increases because we see the proliferation of um, menus and cookbooks that talks about how you can prepare um, sea turtles. People waited like for the newspaper or announcements that, you know, we're going to dress up this sea turtle on Saturday morning so you can come and get your dish, you know, turtle steak or turtle soup or whatever the, the item was. So what you're seeing is a kind of a continuity, whether from the pre-Columbian indigenous communities to the new arrivals, Europeans, and even those who are Africans, both free and enslaved, you know, are also consuming sea turtles um, as a form of meat, right? And it just sort of continues into the commodify, you know, commodification, like just selling this 
these products, right? And that's perhaps one of the best known, but not the only um, turtle product um, that becomes quite popular over the course of the 17 and 18 and, and, and early 1900s. As you've taken us through, you know, obviously pre-Columbian time to thinking of, um, you know, obviously as you ended on the 1900s, I couldn't help but really think of the fact that oftentimes when we think of the colonies, particularly the British colonies, most of the region is associated with sugar, right? We've had several conversations on, you know, Jamaica, Antigua, I could go on and on. And sugar is always that staple product um, in terms of industry in the colonies. Cayman Islands, as um, I know from reading your book, points to a much different history, particularly in terms of just how they've evolved in their industry. So could you talk to us a bit about the fact that, you know, Cayman Islands obviously didn't have a sustaining sugar economy, but the sea was in large part um, a place for them to draw monies from. So how did the sea fare in their economic development and how did that affect the natural ecosystems of these surrounding waters? So you're hitting on a point or a set of questions that really kind of um, propelled me forward when becoming excited about this project. I too thought it was particularly strange when I thought back about like what I studied in school, how everything that I did know about the Caribbean and, and particularly about big places in the Eastern Caribbean, like Cuba or Jamaica, you know, or even Trinidad was always about agricultural production, these agricultural exports. But I'm like, they're islands, like aren't there like maritime and marine, you know, kind of um, activities or cultural forms that are occurring besides pirates, because, you know, there's all this Pirates of the Caribbean, which is important, but perhaps is not the only thing. So the Cayman Islands becomes um, really an interesting avenue for me to try to make sense out of your set of questions. And what I guess I would explain their unique uh, divergence from other patterns um, in the region um, might be twofolded. On the one hand, um, the Cayman Islands, which include the larger island of um, Grand Cayman, Cayman Brock, the next um, large in size, and then finally the smallest little Brack. These are pretty much low-lying, mostly sandy beach islands, um, a few of them, particularly Grand Cayman, um, they're really encircled by coral reefs. So there's kind of this like rocky kind of perimeter around portions of the islands. They they did have, you know, really um, beautiful mahogany and, and some timber, you know, in the interior of these small islands. But the soil essentially is not very rich, um, you know, have like a mountainous terrain. And so on the one hand, the people who will come to live and make um, the Cayman Islands um, their homes, whether they're at, on Little Cayman or Cayman Brock or Grand Cayman, um, they really do not view opportunities uh, in terms of economic development by implanting kind of a plantation system. I should state that they experiment with it, but they ultimately don't really succeed in it. It's not that you can't get sugarcane and they're not having access to like sugarcane being produced on some of the islands or coconuts. They do, but they don't develop um, an economic blueprint for having plantations as the kind of premier or kind of the primary mode of economic activity. And part of it has to do with um, kind of your cost effectiveness, like the effort that you would need to develop the islands in that way may not really seem to work because of the kind of uh, physical landscape of these islands. Um, you do have moments where early on they they do um, extract uh, mahogany kind of similarly for your listeners or people who live in the region like Belize. Um, so there is some felling of timber. They do try cotton, Sea Island cotton, and, and they do all right for a while, but these are really tiny islands. And so their production is never really all that high. And so what they're going to figure out is that, you know, they're going to use the land that's available mostly for provision grounds. Um, and then they're going to turn their attention toward the sea increasingly after um, slave emancipation um, in 1830s. And when they're looking at the sea, it's not necessarily that immediately 
um, turtle fishing is the primary economic activity. Actually, it's wrecking, like waiting for like a uh, you know, shipwreck, you know, and then having people like swim out there and like grab their goods and maybe, well, we'll say negotiate as opposed to like hold on ransom. Like, do you want these things back? How much are you going to pay us for it? Um, you know, that's kind of like one of their maritime activities. And they are um, also kind of hunting sea turtles and selling them to ships, as I explained before, who are increasingly interested in having them as part of their provisions. But prior to emancipation, you know, what they are largely growing in food is um, local. And to some extent, um, they're selling what they're producing at a local level onward to Jamaica. So they're kind of like a small storehouse um, to Jamaica. And, and a historian by the name of Mary Draper has been doing some really interesting work about that. But the other issue, and I think it's equally important to kind of point it out. So it's not just kind of the physical landscape, the scale of the island, um, kind of what possibilities may exist there. It's also like the development of who arrived. Um, the Cayman Islands were you know, first kind of visited, if you will, or I, I hate to say discovered, but kind of visited by the Spanish. They found nothing interesting there. There was no established indigenous communities of people living there already. So there wasn't any labor they can extract from. So they sort of passed it by. And eventually you will get English speaking, you know, individual settlers who will start to come um, initially from Bermuda, right, kind of expanding outward into the Caribbean. And they just don't seem to have the same support from the government in terms of like establishing um, the type of uh, societal and commercial links back with um, England to really pursue some of these kind of plantation style um, development projects that you see in larger islands or in even smaller islands further down in the in the lesser um, Antilles. And so I think it's kind of a two-folded problem. It's the physical landscape of the islands and then and kind of what it can offer in terms of its soil and the possibilities of really scaling it to a profitable level of producing any type of plantation project um, and then our product. And then I think the other issue is that the people who arrive there are sort of like stragglers, like the people who are not able to get a buy-in to maybe more established colonies. And so they kind of try their luck, you know, on these islands and they don't have the same um, commitment and or interest in trying to jumpstart or launch um, plantations as you're going to see elsewhere. I think that's just, you know, for me, a novel perspective in understanding Caribbean history on a whole, right? Um, there are different ways that our for some of us, of course, countries or nations, but our lands developed. And, you know, so oftentimes we're sort of fed this one track story, as you even mentioned, right? It's always sugar, um, particularly for the Caribbean. Uh, I think even for the U.S. South, it's oftentimes cotton. But there are so oftentimes just, you know, variety in the way that our lands developed. And it ch changes when you really consider these individual islands and nations, of course. I do want to shift a little bit, particularly to that sort of like post-emancipation moment, right? Because this is a time in the 1830s and in the aftermath of particularly those of African descent, um, newly emancipated individuals in a sense because of obviously um, slavery ending, not that there weren't obviously other ways of people self-emancipating as we have talked about with Maroons, etc. Um, but this is a moment when people are actually really having to contend with survival in a sense. And as you've been pointing to, sea exploration for those in Cayman Islands is a part of that. And so as you talked about the different ways people um, use the sea to sort of generate wealth um, and survival through wrecking, through hunting the sea turtles, there's also a point when stepping back from Cayman Islands in particular at this moment, um, big picture wise, there are like national development is big at the time, right? There are obviously nations throughout Central and South America that are no longer colonies as well. And so this then adds to sort of the, at least in my mind, charting the some of the challenges maybe these sea adventurers had as they 
you know, are venturing out into the sea based off international borders. So how did this sea exploration sort of factor into that? Um, and especially, you know, as a British colony at the time and, you know, Cayman Islands continues to be in the, in its case particular, how did the UK fare in sort of its responses? So this is a great question. It actually gives me an opportunity um, to kind of step back just a moment to the second part of your um, previous uh, a pair of questions. I think you asked about kind of the way in which um, the, the sea fared in its economic development and how it kind of uh, impacted the, the surrounding waters and the ecosystem. And, and those two things are kind of linked up together. So um, it gives me an opportunity to go back to, to that part of your question. So I, I should clarify that um, for, for the listeners, in the, in the case of the Cayman Islands, um, after slave emancipation in 1834, um, so one thing you're not going to see, you're not going to see an apprenticeship. Um, so there's not this kind of period really that kind of sort of extensive trial and course of labor, but sort of freedom in which, you know, they're, you know, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with them. What you're going to see happen in the case of the Cayman Islands is that there's not a lot of land that can really be shared or kind of repartitioned to the newly emancipated population. Let's say, for an example, I can think of like Jamaica, where you have sort of this, um, what they call reconstituted peasantry, where people kind of go back into the interior and they, you know, take land and they make it communal or they create these free villages. You, you don't really see um, a turn towards the land. Um, a lot of emancipated um, individuals are going to kind of turn toward the sea. And that means that they're going to um, either migrate outward to places um, that they have become familiar with because of previous familial um, migrations um, decades earlier or because of their involvement in the turtle hunting, which I'll talk about more extensively as part of your, your question about the international borders. So it's important for us to think about like emancipation as this turning point where land it's not really an option. You're not going to like, let me settle in my own land and, you know, have enough food to eat. And, you know, I'm going to create this community in the same way. Um, people really have to think about how the sea can be used and leveraged for their newfound freedom. So you're going to see some of these emancipated individuals um, turn to places like the Bay Islands, a set of islands off the coast of um, what Spanish Honduras was kind of how it was thought of in the 19th century. In Spanish, they call them the Roatan Islands. And some of these places are gonna be new homes for people who are from the Cayman Islands, many of whom are individuals who had been recently emancipated and who are kind of trying to look for access to land. Others are going to increasingly um, find maritime work is going to offer them um, the greatest opportunity for autonomy and not being in a position where they have to kind of go to former slaveholders to, to seek some type of job. So it's, so it's important for me to kind of use this opportunity to talk about the moment of emancipation and sort of the way it plays out um, for um, Caymanians. That also parallels with um, a process that had been taking place, let's say, 30 years to 50 years prior. So 1834 is, you know, emancipation, but about three to four decades earlier, what has already happened um, around the Cayman Islands is that their ability to continue to easily acquire sea turtles, easily being that um, sea turtles had been nesting, basically um, going to the beaches of Grand Cayman or Little Cayman or Cayman Brock in order to kind of um, have their uh, egg chambers where they're going to deliver their little eggs and, and then create little new sea turtles. Um, that made it really easy for Caymanians to essentially be like these great sea turtle hunters. They didn't really have to go so far, right? They, they knew enough about the cycles by which um, sea turtles um, and how they would come there to be nested. They knew that it was very easy for you to kind of grab a impregnated sea turtle because they're huge and they're slow on the sea. But over time, they become so effective at that that they have to go increasingly out into the sea. So they were sure 
taking these sea turtles and then eventually they have to go further out and follow essentially where they are and where are these sea turtles moving to well the waters of today what we might think of cuba which at that time was a spanish colony so they're going around the perimeters of the, the, the larger island of cuba that becomes sort of problematic um, in the you know, middle of the 1800s because of changes on that island as they're engaging increasingly by the 1860s in an anti-colonial movement against Spain. Um, so you find that Caymanian sea turtle hunters, right, have to continue to find where they can access these turtles. They move further out to sea. They're now going to places um, like islands off the coast of Honduras and in Nicaragua, and they're they're finding um, less government um, kind of regulation. There's not really like a Honduran or Nicaraguan you know Coast Guard out there like early on in the 1800s or the middle of the 1800s um, preventing them from um, you know acquiring sea turtles without getting a license or paying a custom you know a tax. But that starts to change um, as we get to the latter part of the 19th century. And it's really to the point that you raised in with your last question about the international borders and the, and the rise of nation states. You know, Latin American countries, the Spanish speaking countries, um, most of them, with the exception of places like Puerto Rico and Cuba, had already engaged in wars of independence. So they kind of had their anti-colonial movements. They're, they're kind of ended by the 1820s and definitely by the 1850s. And what any nation state wants is to kind of have a stability, political stability, and it needs to have a means of making money. And what increasingly starts to happen is that they are feeling threatened that these Caymanian sea turtle hunters are effectively um, entering into what they perceive to be as kind of their sovereign space, extracting a marine resource, and they're not getting paid for it. Right. And, and so this marine resource, the sea turtles, right, will be ultimately sold, you know, to markets internationally, whether to Europe or the United States. And so you start to see increasingly um, Spanish speaking governments in Central America and, and Colombia as well, which are trying to figure out how they can regulate uh, an kind of an industry that they hadn't really formally paid attention to or been attuned to. And because you have um, the Caymanians who are really not a very, I don't know, significant, you know, colonial territory for the British, um, but, but nevertheless, they're really effective at getting the British government to intercede on their behalf because they're able to um, kind of push the British government to understanding that if they don't protect Caymanian sea turtle hunters right to fish in open waters well then how can the british effectively have an overseas maritime empire increasingly they too will face backlash and pushback so these you know few hundred you know men who are roaming around on these schooners and sloops, you know, spending three to four to five months sometimes away from their island homes so they can, you know, hunt hundreds of sea turtles and, and are causing all of these sort of um, diplomatic um, challenges to kind of international boundaries. They become really, really important in how all of these governments are effectively trying to assert some type of national sovereignty and claim. And the British, you know, are working kind of hard on behalf of these Caymanians who they don't, you know, to, to be honest with, the Cayman Islands at this time is a dependency to Jamaica. So they're not like politically a very important component of the, the colonial system. They're doing their best to try to stake a claim or continue to have the same um, political presence in a region that is rapidly changing. And so ironically, these like sea turtle hunters are causing all of these different problems for um, these governments, but they also reflect the larger kind of geopolitical changes um, that are, are happening um, literally on the sea um, as opposed to on the ground. That for me was one of 
just like sort of the most interesting points in reading your book, right? The fact that this group of um, a few hundred explorers, sea turtle, or as you refer to them in your book, turtle men, right, have such a great impact in terms of not just, you know, maybe it would be one thing if it was just solely UK, because obviously Cayman Islands is a colony, but they were literally just impacting international relations across the entire region and venturing out towards, as you noted, you know, Nicaragua um, and other parts of Central and South America. So for me, it's just, you know, one of those moments where it flips the power relations and agency story that we typically hear on its head, right? It's usually how all of um, these powers, the nation state, et cetera, or the colonial body are impacting those who have less power systemically or systematically. Um, but this was a point where, you know, those who are usually underrepresented and lack the power, quote unquote, voice or powerful voice really had a point of, you know, making change in terms of to an extent through turtles and sea turtles, which I just found it was just like a great read in terms of um, understanding this history. So another, you know, plug for those interested beyond the story to definitely check out Dr. Crawford's book. I do really um, even in that vein, want to take us to the 20th century. And as some of my listeners might remember from an episode we did on the Virgin Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands in particular, the 20th century, and not just, you know, across um, the U U.S. Virgin Islands, but, you know, in the region and the Americas in itself, the 20th century really becomes that moment of thinking about environmental conservation, um, and as we're noting with sea turtles, of course, this is a part of the story primarily because, as you mentioned, the turtle men have to go further out um, because they have less access to them that they once had for hundreds of years. And so as you were studying the area and the history of this area um, and thinking about resources and access and, you know, how we've moved on to and from land, et cetera. What were the sort of ramifications of conservation in terms of the Cayman Islands and the turtle men and what policies were even directed at the Cayman Islands um, in particular in order to help conserve the turtles? Yeah, this is a, a a wonderful question. And it and to be, you know, honest again to the listeners, remember my opening remarks about my training and my interest, I was pretty much interested in people who are of African descent and, and those who lived in Latin America and the Caribbean. I, I, I didn't really um, have classes about the environment or really thinking about conservation or sea turtles, um, but it became increasingly clear um, that I couldn't tell this history without thinking about what happened to these few hundred men, um, some of whom had been doing it all their lives, and they were the third or fourth generation of sea turtle hunters and their families starting as, as young as eight years of age. What happened um, to them? What happened to the turtle fishing industry? As you point out, by the middle of the 20th century, we're really looking at an international kind of environmental movement that is emerging, that there's a voice, there are um, advocacy that's happening. And the best way for me to start to understand and kind of pull that apart a little bit actually drew me away from the Cayman Islands for a moment. And it drew me away from um, Caymanians and other uh, turtle hunting communities that I um, focus on a little bit, you know, um, briefly in the book towards a scientist by the name of Archie Carr. Archie Carr essentially is like um, a person who studies reptiles. <laughs> he was a professor at the University of Florida. And um, it may not seem apparent to most uh, people because it wasn't to me until I had to study this. Sea turtles are an example of a reptile. They're a marine reptile. And um, he happened to have his interest in um, Central America. And he came across a student in his time teaching in Central America, who was from Costa Rica, who told him, you need to come to my country. You need to come to this area in the Caribbean where 
we have all these sea turtles. <laughs> like, they come there every year. You know, people from all over go there to hunt them, including Caymanians. And so Archie Carr uh, decides to, to do some research in the area. And one of the things that's so striking about Archie Carr is that unlike um, maybe other scientists at the time or even today, he really had his pulse on real people and communities. So while he may have been interested in some questions about what happens to sea turtles and where do they go and how do we, you know, eventually how can we um, conserve them, he was very mindful that there are real people throughout the Caribbean, throughout the Caribbean um, coastal regions of Central America who have been for generations, you know, consuming these um, animals as part of their diet. This is something that sustains them. And it's not so easy to just simply, um, you know, remove that component of their lifestyle. And he traveled extensively in the region, studying various turtle communities. And of course, everywhere he went, he hears about the Caymanians. He goes to Trinidad, he hears about the Caymanians. He goes to Panama, he hears about the Caymanians. And so eventually he goes to the Cayman Islands. And who does he meet, you know, in the 1950s? A lot of these sort of veteran um, sea captains of these uh, turtle fishing um, vessels who have all these stories to tell him, stories that he takes seriously. He actually takes sort of um, the experiences, the lived experiences of these Caymanian hunters um, for true kind of knowledge in terms of understanding the the cycles and the movements of things that they had observed for years. And he found himself, as I think some of us can imagine, in sort of a quandary. So as he collected and he spent summers and you know years coming back to Costa Rica to study this one area in the northern um, strip of the coast where the sea turtles would come to nest their eggs, and he was really trying to figure out how can he salvage you know how can we even this you know like conserve what we have let alone how might we repopulate um, the sea turtle populations elsewhere he also knew that they had to do so very delicately because there's actual real people who would be harmed who would be impacted um, essentially if the laws were too harsh and eventually um, it took a while uh, for him he realized that other modes of um, conservation policies that try to limit um, periods of time when you um, can hunt sea turtles or his efforts to work with other international um, scientists through the region in terms of repopulating, bringing little baby sea turtles, you know, little turtlings essentially to the beaches throughout the Caribbean, perhaps is not enough action to kind of save the turtles that he ultimately um, will agree that the best efforts is to just basically put a ban, you know, kind of a moratorium on, on sea turtle hunting. And that has a direct impact um, on um, the Cayman Islands to your question. Now, the impact on the Cayman Islands um, by the latter part of the 50s, early 60s is not as devastating as it would have been had this happened maybe five or six decades earlier. So um, his efforts to work internationally to um, stop the importation of any type of sea turtle product into a place like the United States, which was the primary market for Caymanian hunted sea turtles, is a blow to the islands. And that means that they're going to have to figure out, are we going to completely shut down this industry or we're going to have an alternative you know, economic policy. And let me kind of be clear in, in mentioning this to the listeners. I don't think I've said it clearly enough. For all of up until, let's say, from the middle of the 1800s until the 1960s, for sure, the primary economy of the Cayman Islands is sea turtle hunting. It's not banking, it's not tourism, it's not sugar, it's not bananas or cacao, it's literally hunting sea turtles. And so um, any policy that limits their ability to bring in their, you know, their product for sale, it's going to be devastating, except for there's some things that had happened right before um, these international laws um, were established by the 1970s that sort of um, make the impact on the Cayman Islands not as devastating. And part of it has to do with the post-war period, the post-Second World War period. Um, 
the World War II period really disrupted the turtle fishing industry in terms of, you know, safely being able to transport sea turtles to the markets um, that they needed um, elsewhere in the U.S. And, and in Europe. So that had already kind of shifted the demand in response. The United States um, had already, you know, kind of created alternate forms of turtle meat. In fact, there's recipes called mock turtle that kind of give you the sense of sea turtle, but it's not. And so there was already some um, reduction in that market. We also started to see that introduction of Caymanians um, um, to volunteer for the war effort on behalf of the British Empire as sailors offers them an opportunity to have work elsewhere. And then after the war, by the 50s, they're like in demand. People realize these Caymanian um, sailors are like really, really good. And so they start to find work on merchant marine ships, sometimes work outside of, you know, um, the, the, the kind of maritime landscape. Sometimes they're in oil rigs in Venezuela or they're finding work in the Gulf Coast of the United States. And so you start to see that the few hundred uh, sea turtle hunters become smaller and smaller because of larger geopolitical um, factors. So by the time you're getting to the 60s and 70s with the international conservation efforts, you really are talking about a much um, smaller group of individuals who are dedicated to this very niche luxury market. That being said, there are still interest in preserving um, sea turtle hunting. And so you get international people who decide, well, maybe we need to create kind of a an opportunity so us for us to kind of raise sea turtles. We're not going to capture them wild, but maybe we can create the conditions by which we can kind of have a farmed sort of sea turtle industry. And, and it existed for a while into the, the latter part of the 80s into the 90s, but it it never could really um, essentially overcome the challenges of a reduced market. If you, if you can't legally bring in sea turtle products to your main source of purchasers, um, it, it's very hard to sustain it. All these changes, right? The post-war period providing um, different opportunities, um, the band and how it reduced access to the market forced those who were in power on the islands um, that make up the Cayman Islands to look to something else. And they started to look to tourism, right? People didn't go to the Cayman Islands prior to like the 1960s and 70s. There was no infrastructure. There's barely roads. There was no like, you know, electrification. All that um, starts to happen um, like other parts of the, the Caribbean. We're seeing similar parallels in places like Jamaica and elsewhere, right? During the 50s and 60s, where it becomes uh, an opportunity um, to shift the economy. And so the the first major shift, obviously, is, is towards tourism. And it's not that all people who were in the turtling industry are working in tourism. It just means that the, the, the attention towards sea turtling no longer is sustainable and they have to figure out something that replaces it. So you see it's sort of this dual system, um, these larger international pressures because of conservation efforts made by environmentalists like Archie Carr, who's really sensitive actually to the local condition, maybe even more so than the average environmentalist. He doesn't really want to harm these local communities. And yet because of the post-war period that had preceded um, this moment about 15 to 20 years earlier, there are already some changes underfoot on the local economy um, scale um, in the Cayman Islands that kind of help that transition towards um, a new economic activity like tourism launch itself by the, the 1960s into the 70s. You made a great point, just one that was sort of like mind-blowing to me in terms of the Cayman Islands being really central to this luxury food market beyond even the Caribbean, but also into the U.S., into Europe, is the fact that, you know, Campbell's soup, right? Like the renowned Campbell's soup that everybody, not everybody, but most people know, right, was a parent company of a company who was also selling canned turtle soup. The turtles were coming from the Cayman Islands, right? Just to give you all an idea of not only the fact that, you know, the Cayman Islands main industry was sea turtles, but also the global market of turtle 
soup consumption would not be what it was without really understanding the pivotal role of the Cayman Islands and of these very small number of turtlemen. So I really wanted to add that um, in addition to you talking about just the, the industry and the destruction that, you know, was caused through conservation. There are several sort of actors in a sense in your book, right? Obviously we are adhering to the turtle men and the turtles themselves, but one might not even fully think about it in the explicit way in how I'm going to phrase it in this question, that your book is also a story on race and race dynamics, right? We've talked on the um, histories of enslavement and obviously into emancipation, et cetera, but the turtle men who we've been discussing were predominantly black or of African descent. And despite the fact that, you know, the turtle industry, turtle soup becomes widely expensive in the global north and things to that nature. It's not like, you know, it was equitable in terms of what they were receiving for, you know, not only putting their lives out and in danger getting turtles or exploring um, in the sea, etc. So I just definitely wanted to raise that point in a sense um, about the equity factor in it that, you know, those who are doing this turtle fishing compared to the major corporations and businesses, you know, like Campbell's and et cetera, many of them didn't get that same wealth generation. And so could you talk to us just a bit about how race even just played into the understanding of the industry in the Cayman Islands? No, thank you so much. And you know, I, I have to be honest, it was very difficult, ironically, for all my interest in, in studying people of African descent um, and, and questions of race. In the case of the Cayman Islands, it, it's a little bit difficult to um, parse out. And, and let me offer some context as to why I think that's the case. So I mentioned, um, you know, several minutes ago when thinking about uh emancipation on the Cayman Islands and how um, many emancipated people looked to the sea, some of whom um, migrated off the island. The Cayman Islands um, remained a place that had um, essentially, maybe we might think of them as sort of a two-tier color racial kind of um, hierarchy. individuals whom would call themselves or think of themselves as clear skin. And for those of you who grew up in the Caribbean, I think it, it's it's easier for you to understand that kind of terminology. Um, for someone like myself who grew up in the States, it's like saying you're kind of fair skin, light skinned, right? These are people who perhaps we would see or think of as presenting as white. And they may even think of themselves as white, but it's probably not exactly the case. They're probably people of racially mixed background. And then you had um, individuals whom the community even and in themselves understood being more linked to slavery and people of, of African ancestry. And what happens with that two-tier system is that uh, two things happen. On the one hand, you have um, the people who are actually performing the labor of going out on the ships. They're the members, you know, they're the crew members. They're the ones who are hunting these sea turtles going away for three to four months. They are often crew members um, who, you know, are on these vessels with a sea captain who may or may not be um, Black or, you know, someone who's viewed and known as being um, Afro-Caymanian. But for certain, the people who fund the vessel, the people who have to raise the capital to outfit the vessel, who make sure that there's enough food there and that they have enough equipment um, and that the, the ship, or sorry, the, the sloop or the schooner, that's the names of these particular types of sailing vessels, that they are prepared to go launch these hunts. Those are individuals who are viewed in the community, who see themselves as the community as uh, white or adjacent white. And that's where the colorism racial system comes in, even in addition to the larger kind of global capital system. So you have it at the micro level of the Caymanian society. You also have it, you know, in terms of the larger kind of global capitalist system. What makes this complicated is the second point. Within the British Empire, 
um, it's it's apparent from you know the material that I was able to get my hands on, whether that was formal diplomatic records um, from the British government. And, and for those of you who are not like scholars of you know history, let me tell you, the British write about everything. There's so much material that they produce. But even outsiders who are like journalists who you know do articles and newspaper accounts, it's very clear that they view the Cayman Islands is sort of a non-Black place in the Caribbean. So Caymanians themselves are kind of bifurcated. There's two groups, you know, those who are the descendants of enslaved people who are kind of understood and viewed as Black. And then there's an, a, a second group, right, who probably views themselves as white, even if they don't use that terminology and, and they present as white. And because they slightly are the majority, slightly the majority, the British government and even some outsiders often, but not all the time, talk about them as sort of like the whites of the Caribbean, if that makes sense. So I found it very challenging at times to um, tease out um, the multiple levels of race and labor um, in this particular set of islands. Um, but it did play out. I can give a really clear example. One of the main locations um, that Caymanian um, sea turtle hunters travel to, a set of islands um, that are um, referred to as the Mosquito Islands, which are sort of a part of Nicaragua. Um, there's always intense uh, diplomatic uh, wranglings over Caymanian access to the turtle fishing grounds. And at one point, the Nicaraguan officials write to the British government and they essentially say, if you are able to successfully renegotiate this treaty to access the turtle fishing grounds, tell the Caymanians not to bring any more Blacks with them. <laughs> and I thought, huh, so I'm having this sort of interesting dynamic. On the one hand, in the in the English language sources that are coming from the British government or American, you know, um, visitors writing newspaper accounts, they're not excluding the fact that there are people of African descent on the island, but they highlight more the lack of Black people, you know, actually on the island. And then here I'm seeing a Spanish language source where the Nicaraguan government essentially explicitly says, don't bring any more negros, like very specific, right? Don't bring any more of those um, from Cayman Islands. And so, um, you know, I'm not sure if, if anyone ever picks up this book, <laughs> I'm not sure I, I actually was able to settle in my own mind um, questions around race and labor within the Caymanian society. But what I do point out that the Cayman Islands is just one of many of these communities, which often are um, indigenous, um, you know, Native American communities um, in Central um, America, along with um, Afro-descended populations um, in some of these communities. And it's for sure a very Black um, kind of labor system. But for the Caymanians, it's 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 also a kind of odd positionality that's it's not really easily um, tussled out, and it could explain um, just to connect it to some other threads. I I know your listeners may have been following from other episodes. It may help to explain why the Cayman Islands today still are British overseas territories and chose not to. Um, first go with the West Indian Federation or subsequently find their own independence. And if you visit the Cayman Islands today, um, it would be apparent to you that oftentimes the very um, kind of presented Afro-descended people you see working in the hotel industry or walking down the street, they're not the Caymanians. They're the neighboring Jamaicans or Barbadians or Trinidadians or you know other people from different Caribbean islands. And, and there's sort of a, a weird sort of replication of this bifurcated color racial hierarchy um, that has maintained itself um, despite these changes in the economy um, over the last 170 or so, 50, you know, 90 years or so. So I, I hope I, I kind of got to your, it's a thoughtful question. It's one that I'm still wrestling with trying to fully flesh out myself. Definitely. But I think one that 
you know, needed to be said just not only to explicitly understand the racial dynamics in the Cayman Islands and of this fishing industry, but to really hone in on the fact that, you know, the way that these stories are told based off who is telling them is really critical to helping shape even contemporary legacies of this fishing village, right? I'm really struck by your point of considering, you know, how that might contend with the fact that the Cayman Islands um, didn't ultimately seek independence, because that's always a question for me as I'm, you know, whether it's recording podcasts or um, in my own work, understanding that post-colonial moment or, you know, or the moments when everybody is considering potentially going independent. And so I think that helps to really contextualize potentially why I'm sure there might be other factors, but thank you for sharing that as well. Alrighty. Final question. Cause I know we got to wrap up, but if you would like to read more and learn more, I definitely again, recommend Dr. Crawford's work. I would love to hear from you some of the ways that this longer history of um, turtle soup and the fishing industry in the Cayman Islands shows up in popular culture in the region. Yes. So I have three examples, um, very different examples, and I don't know how popular. Yeah, they're popular, maybe not to a, a certain generation, perhaps. So the first example, um, two of which are books. So my first book example is a beautiful book written by a a Caymanian cultural historian. His name is J.A. Roy Bowden, and it's titled The Gathering of Old Men. And it's sort of like a collection of stories that, um, you know, perhaps, you know, are kind of, they were told to him or he heard them when he was a young child, and he's sort of retelling it to us, things he might have picked up on, you know, being at the side of one of the elders in his community. And it really gives you um, a window into sort of the interior workings of 20th century Caymanian society and, and culture. There are a number of um, really interesting stories about turtle men, stories that I can verify occurred, you know, through other sources. And even if he's, you know, perhaps not providing the most like historically factual or accurate version, you get to hear it from the Caymanian side. And so I, I recommend... Um, those of you who are just want to hearing it from the voice of Caymanians, um, J. Roy Bowden's um, The Gathering of Old Men. A second book um, that I highly recommend is actually from an American novelist. I didn't know this, but he was really well known. His name um, was Peter Matheson. He was known as sort of like a uh, an environmental writer, wrote several, several books, but one of which um, was often considered an experimental novel called Far Tortuga. And really what it was, it was his um, fictional sort of uh, account of his time in the 1960s when the New Yorker magazine contracted him to go out on one of the last turtle hunts um, with these Caymanian sea turtle hunters. Um, and he sort of uh, depicts what I imagine is both his own experience on these you know, this voyage from Florida to the Cayman Islands to Nicaragua, um, his own personal experience, but likely he was able to infuse the stories that the crew and the sea captain told him. And he tried to replicate the actual Caymanian speech. So it's actually written, oftentimes the dialogue, um, as how he understood Caymanians speaking their English, which makes it experimental in the U.S. kind of parlance. I don't know if it's that experimental, but it's really a great book if you wanted to get a, a kind of a textured um, experience um, of what it was like for these turtle men. And then finally, another set of paintings um, is my third kind of recommendation by an American painter. His name was Winslow Homer. Like he's kind of maybe well-known. Uh, he kind of was known for these beautiful landscape um, paintings from the late 19th, early 20th century. And he too was like, contracted by some well-known magazine in the 1880s to go to the Bahamas. And he was really interested in ordinary people working. So he has all these beautiful um, kind of watercolored um, paintings of Bahamians in their everyday life doing their thing, including those 
who were turtle hunters because bah the Bahamas is one of these sea turtle um, communities that I do highlight and, and address in in a smaller um, section of my book. And so you can kind of really visualize kind of what that work looked like, um, essentially. So those would be my three uh, sort of uh, examples of things that can enlighten us in, in, a, in a beautiful way about the life of either the Cayman Islands or particularly um, Caymanian and other Caribbean turtlemen. Perfect. I will definitely be adding those for our listeners to check out. So in closing, thank you so much, Dr. Crawford, again, for just joining us for this episode and sharing your wisdom and expertise on the area with us. I hope our listeners um, really enjoyed this episode. It was one that I learned a lot from, and I hope you did too. So keep supporting Strictly Facts, whether that is, you know, across all social media platforms. I'll be sure to tag Dr. Crawford in the show notes so you can follow her as well. And of course, the book. So there will be a link to Dr. Crawford's book in the show notes if you'd like to check it out as well. But thank you again so much, Dr. Crawford, for just joining and be sure to continue supporting Strictly Facts, everyone. Till next time, little more. Thanks for tuning in to Strictly Facts. Visit strictlyfactspodcast.com for more information from each episode. Follow us at Strictly Facts Pod on Instagram and Facebook and at Strictly Facts PD on Twitter.